0: is your name demonstrated and been made great. But you have established your kingdom and your home, not just among those who once knew you in the dwelling place of geocentric Zion on that hill, but the knowledge of you has begun to permeate this entire globe and spread to the furthest corners of the earth as prophesied. And now the great renown, the fame of our Lord is being spread abroad This word that we read today is being translated into hundreds, yes, thousands of languages. There is a great harvest over the centuries that has been reaped from every tribe and tongue and nation, and if not yet will be unto the praise of your great name. Lord, we stand here as testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit to reach across the years of history and reach into hard hearts and distant lands And to reap for yourself a harvest of people unto the praise of your great name. As a result of the sufficiency of your means that you deploy in the spread of your great gospel. Among these is your preached word, which we confess we have heard with our ears and we testify is true. The profession of faith in the hearts and on the lips of the believers in this room. Lord, we declare as a result of your sovereign move to open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears to hear and see the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us never to take for granted or grow weary of hearing the beauties of yourself proclaimed and unfolded in your holy scripture. I pray this morning as your word goes forth that we would be attuned to its precepts, that our hearts would be encouraged by its revelation, and that our testimony would be sharpened and equipped By its words, by its principles, by its unequivocal truth, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage your saints and establish us with deeper roots still into streams of living water through the study of your word this day, and that you would fix us even tighter as living stones to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and that you would cause our branches, so to speak, to flourish with more fruit still as we find ourselves planted in the soil that is fertile made so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time we have today. And we pray in closing and an introduction to this message that you would open the hearts of the lost through the proclamation of Christ, glorified and ascended, dead and buried for sinners, and now ruling and reigning and interceding, Lord, even on our behalf as our great high priest. We pray all of these things in his name, the name of Jesus, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the honor and privilege of opening up the Scriptures and beholding them together, and I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis 14 this morning, which will be our text in question, second part of the chapter, verses 17 through 24. Here we find the continuing story, the account of the war between the kings of the north and the kings of the Jordan Valley that has caught the kinsman of Abraham, Lot, up in its collateral damage. Lot, as we read, was taken captive. We'd studied this last week. He and his family and possessions became the spoils of war for the keter Lamer coalition, the Mesopotamian kings, who reasserted their right and dominance over the kings of Lot's area, Sodom, Gomorrah, the Jordan Valley. So in the Valley of Siddam, there was a showdown, and once again, the coalition of the north proved that they were the stronger and they took for themselves from these five cities spoils and among them Lot and his family. After this, Abram intervenes. He hears from a messenger that his kinsman is in harm's way and has been apprehended, taken hostage. So he sends forth, as you recall, leads forth, in fact, his trained men, 318 of them, in pursuit as far as Dan. And he routes the forces attacking them by night and secures victory, not just, uh, not just from captivity for Lot. He doesn't just uh, purchase or secure freedom and liberation for Lot and his family, but also for the entire region. And so after he returns, we find him in the King's Valley, as it's called, the Valley of Sheba. And here we have further revelation. That leads us to this morning's title, which is King's Valley Revelation. Something of significant import happens in this valley that will identify the extraordinary nature of the Messiah in unfolding ways throughout the pages of Scripture to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, truly spectacular. The aim of this morning's message is to mark the typological. That's the adjective form of type. Type is something that represents, stands for, symbolizes something else. In this case, the type in question is Melchizedek, This king of Salem, who is a type, he's a symbol, he's representative of what the Messiah, Christ, will be later. So the aim of this morning's message is to mark the typological importance of Melchizedek's sudden appearance in our account today in the King's Valley. Would you stand with me once again out of reverence for God's word as we open our scriptures? Behold, in your hearing this day, the proclamation of the holy word of truth from Genesis 14, 17 through 20, 24, here is the word of God. After his return from the defeat of keter and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abram, at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This brief incident in Abram's life proves extremely significant to the revelation of the Messiah to come. In the King's Valley, a revelation of the Messiah has taken place with the introduction of Melchizedek. Now, this may be lost on us without the benefit of further Scripture. Without the rest of the testimony of Scripture, particularly two cases directly, Psalm 110, which is quoted prolifically throughout the New Testament, and Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 and other references, without the, this further revelation, uh, the significance of the revelation of Melchizedek may be lost on us. However, with the benefit of further scripture, this central figure of redemption's history would surely, uh, or his testimony, comes, becomes prominent to us. This is one of those moments in the legacy of Abram that takes on staggering implications when viewed from the vantage point of Melchizedek's antitype revealed in Jesus Christ. So, just to go over type and antitype type is a symbol of one to come, antitype is its corresponding fulfillment. So, uh, young people, quick question for you Is Melchizedek a type of Christ or is he the antitype? Melchizedek is the what? He's actually the. Melchizedek is the type, that's correct. And Jesus Christ, therefore, is the type or anti type? Anti type, that's correct. Anti referring to that which comes after. So you have the type which came before Melchizedek, the anti type, the fulfillment which comes after Jesus Christ. So this is the relationship in the devices, the literary devices, if you will, that the scriptures employ to reveal to us something of the nature of Messiah to come. So this is one of those moments that takes on staggering implications when viewed from the vantage point of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is a type of Christ prefiguring the extraordinary nature of the ultimate significant son. Listen to just one verse from Jeremiah 23.5. Jeremiah declares, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is further prophecy and reference to the Messiah to come. Prophetic statements such as this example from Jeremiah echo in word what Melchizedek prefigured in event. So the King's Valley revelation is an event by and large, it's accompanied by words, but it's an event that prefigures prophetically uh, as truths that were on the horizon yet to come, truths that were declared emphatically by word in Jeremiah 23.5 and so many other examples in scripture. And this knowledge or this future prophecy is the advent of a righteous king and prince of peace who will satisfy the covenant people of his own resources So this covenant king to come will give of his own resources to satisfy his people and in so doing, grant them abundant life, mediating great blessings for them as their priest, prophet, sacrifice, and sovereign. Prophet and priest are prominently figured, and I would add, or I'm sorry, priest and king are prominently figured as offices of Christ prefigured in Melchizedek's type. But also by implication, there is prophet, and by uh, revel- further revelation in Hebrews, we have added to this sacrifice. In other words, these events and these words in Scripture prefigure one—a significant sum to come, as we've noted. According to the lineage of Shem, who would embody all of these. Here in our text today is the first explicit mention of priesthood in the Scriptures. And though we have had other aspects of priesthood laid out before us, like sacrifice offered by Abel here, the office of priests is explicitly referred to in the context of the King's Valley Revelation. There, there, uh, thereby we have a unique and extraordinary, if not mysterious figure in Melchizedek, who is introduced to us. And this text moves us, to look beyond the heroes of the faith like Abraham to a greater son still. So that's an introduction for our text today. The heading for three major points is as follows. The significance of Melchizedek is evident in three ways in our text today. Number one, his offices disclosed. So we can appreciate the significance of Melchizedek in his offices that are revealed or disclosed in Genesis 14, 17 through 24. The second major way the significance of Melchizedek is shown or is evident is the offering that is presented. Indeed, by Melchizedek himself, he presents an offering, if you will. Thirdly, there is homage that Melchizedek receives. There is a orientation of Abram to this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, that is instructive of his significance as well. Offices disclosed, offering uh, presented, and homage received. Office offering and homage. So that is the main structure of our message today. Let us first of all consider the revelation in the King's Valley of the threefold, if you will, offices of this figure, Melchizedek. Note again our text, Genesis 14, 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. This, of course, just sets the context. As we mentioned, Abram is coming back from his victory and he's going to meet two kings in this valley of Sheba. One is a wicked king. That's the king of Sodom who isn't even named. The other is a righteous king. And his name is Melchizedek, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Brought out bread and wine. And note this statement in parentheses. He was priest of God most high. So, so far in verse 18, we have references to a twofold office that is unique in the case of Melchizedek. He is king of Salem and he is priest of God most high. But notice he goes on to declare something in verses 19 and 20. And he blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abram, saying and said, Quote, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. This is prophecy. This is the word of God coming forth through his servant Melchizedek, delivered with authority to his servant Abram. Verse 20 continues in this vein. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is Melchizedek prophesying. Here we have him functioning in the role of prophet, uh, with reference or, and referred to as a priest, and he is there in his position representing Salem as a king. King, priest, and prophet. His offices indicate something significant about this man, and the scriptures go on to expound this, particularly, we'll reference later in the message, the book of Hebrews. Consider Melchizedek's office as king. In Hebrews 7.2, it says that he is king of peace, and King of Righteousness, by name, his name actually means Malki, my King Zadek is righteous or is righteousness. His name literally is translated, "My King is righteous" or "My King is righteousness." The significance of the name of Melchizedek should tie his uh, it should tie his uh, revelation here or or his position his. Uh, office here in his appearance in scripture directly to Jesus Christ. In other words, of whom can it truly be said? Of anyone and everyone who's ever lived, of all kingdoms who ever boasted rule or authority, of whom could we truly attach the the name, my king is righteousness. I'm here to tell you that this is a type of the one who alone can bear with ultimate truth that name, and that is Jesus Christ. He is my king, the, uh, our king, the righteous one. Our righteous king is Jesus Christ. Therefore, by name, the righteousness, that is the uh, uh, way in which Melchizedek ruled and his office as sovereign is revealed. But more is revealed about his kingdom by location. It says that he was... Not just Melchizedek, which means my king is righteous, but also king of a place. He was king of Salem. Young people, question for you. Can you think of a town, can you think of a city in the Bible that reminds you of this word, Salem? There's a city in the Bible that is related to this word Salem. Does anyone know what it is? That is correct. Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Salem share this connection point. They have similar meanings and similar words to identify them. Most think, in fact, that this area, Salem, became Jerusalem to come. That is to say, in the geography here, Melchizedek, the righteous king, was king of this area that would later be identified as the meeting place of God with his people. The place where his temple worship was established. A a place that is associated with Mount Zion. Salem, furthermore, means peace. It's related to the Hebrew word shalom, which is a greeting meant to communicate the peace that only Messiah can truly bring. The peace that only the Prince of Peace can truly offer. The hope that is held out and delivered by one and only one. Of him the angel sang at his birth from the heavenlies uh, that... uh, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. This kind of peace, reconciliation of God with man, is the Salem, the Shalom, the Jerusalem kind of peace that is referenced by this kingdom identity of Melchizedek. So, by name, He is our righteous king, if you will. By location, He is the King of Peace, the King of Shalom, the King of what would be identified as Jerusalem. This is an interesting identification in the context. Why? Because Abram has just gone to war. There's been conflict in the region. There's been this ongoing tension between nations. There were the nations, the tyrants from the north imposing tribute on the kings of the uh, of the south. The kings of the south rose up trying to declare their independence. They secured it for the year, until for a year until the kings of the north came down and defeated them once again, subjecting them to their heavy hand of tribute and tyranny. And then Abram intervenes on behalf of his kinsman Lot, securing for the area once again independence, defeating and sending the kings of the north. And you see, this kind of war and conflict is more often the norm in world history than a Jerusalem uh, kind of prophesied peace. Nevertheless, the existence of the kingdom of Salem, the uh, the kingdom of peace, and its sovereign, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, holds out hope for a king and a kingdom yet future which will deliver fully and finally the ultimate promise of peace." So if Melchizedek is the type who ruled over an area which was known by righteous law and which was known for peace, the anti-type is Jesus Christ who will one day rule over the new heavens and new earth, over new Jerusalem as it's revealed in Revelation, and there The lion will lay down with the lamb, the ultimate picture of reconciliation and peace, where man will dwell freely, having been ransomed and redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ in the presence of the thrice holy God, sharing that glorious a privilege of worshiping him with our words and our lips and our activity in this new Jerusalem, this reconstituted earth alongside the seraphim who even now cry, as we see in Isaiah's temple vision in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. And so this is what is disclosed in the kingly office of Melchizedek. Hope for a righteous king who is sovereign over the terms of peace who will one day promise and accomplish for his own security and deliverance from the captivity of the consequences of sin, even as Lot is delivered in this instance and is there with Abram, presumably in the King's Valley, receiving this glorious blessing and glorious meal. Second office, priest. This parenthetical statement, he was priest of God Most High, it sticks out like an explosion. When you read this sentence or this partial sentence, it ought to send a chill down your spine. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. I cannot overstate in this message the implications of that statement. It sticks out like a uh, an amazing uh, fireworks display of God's glory just to borrow an analogy to try to draw our attention to its significance. The fact that divine priesthood, the fact that a mediation or mediatory role, one who would stand in between two parties is introduced in this figure of Melchizedek speaks volumes and will be unfolded through the entire priesthood that was ordained symbolically of the Old Testament and governs so much of the content of the Levitical law and so forth, so much of the Hebrew culture and so much of the hope and expectation was rooted in this culture of sacrifice and priestly mediation until the coming of the true mediator and the high priest who is revealed in Jesus Christ and identified as such in the book of Hebrews. Yet here we have its first mention in explicit terms in the scripture. We have an individual who is not just a king, who by his name represented a righteous rule, by his name represented a kingdom of peace, but also by his office represented hope of communion with God. If God has supplied a priest, then there is hope of reconciliation of relationship between a sinner and a holy God. And Melchizedek stood for this kind of promise. True worship. This tells us more though, true worship and worshipers at this time in salvation's history were not limited exclusively to the tents of Abram. That would probably be our assumption up to this point until we read this section. In other words, we ask, where did Melchizedek come from? How did he hear about the one true God? How is it that in the middle of Canaan there was this pocket of righteousness in the kingdom of Salem? How is it in the middle of this pagan people full of, of sinners like Sodom and Gomorrah who are heaping up for themselves judgment on the day of wrath by rampant depravity, depravity, homosexuality, and every form of debauchery. How is it in the middle of this area there is an isolated pocket where there is a priest king who worships the Lord in truth and presumably declares within his realm by his righteous decrees that there is a God above all gods, the one true God who is possessor of heaven and earth, and he alone deserves our praise, our devotion, and our attention. Well, this is a preliminary fulfillment of the prophecy through the lineage of the tents of Japheth, is it not? Remember? Japheth and the? Japheth, remember? Search of the sea, coastlands. Japheth and the coastlands. This held out hope that distant regions would have pockets that would glorify the Lord. And here we have a coastland region that had been touched with the revelation of God and had a righteous king and a people presumably honoring him in the midst of a wicked world. Profound indeed. Are there other examples of this in the Old Testament? That is revelation and true worship of the one true God outside of the immediate covenant relationship of Abram. Yes, Job would be another example. An example of a righteous man who isn't directly connected in Scripture to the testimony as far as we can tell of Abram. That is, he didn't dwell in his tents. He wasn't part of his lineage. Nevertheless, true worship and worshipers at this time in salvation's history, our text today testifies, was not exclusive to the tents of Abram, but had been already reaching out beyond that small tribal enclave, and had its worshipers and had its expression in other lands. Praise his holy name. As we see this worship evident in our section today, we recognize the piety of Melchizedek in referring to the one true God, the God of Abram, the God who blessed him, the God that rules over all, as El Elion, God Most High, or God over the gods. The God whose mere existence decrees and reveals that there is no other authority. This is, by, this is the possessor of heaven and earth. He identifies God. Possessor, if you look closely at the language, meaning he owns the world. He owns all the created realm by virtue of his created power. Since he created it, he owns it. He owns you and me. You are not you are uh, you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. Uh, the heavens are the Lord's, and the earth uh, is also His. The world, the seas, all that dwell therein. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Scripture, but this testimony of the absolute authority of the Almighty God is here echoed by Melchizedek, the righteous king of Salem, who professes as much in his declaration of God's blessing. Over Abram. He is king. He is priest. As priest, he d- delivers this mediatory blessing, which we'll touch upon in a moment. But also, as revealed by these words, he's a prophet. By implication, at least serving in that role in this instance, by impl- implication, he proclaims the word of God to the people, and in so doing, serves in the office of prophet. And so here we have a figure when in his offices he discloses a certain significance. Melchizedek is king, priest, and prophet in this uh, event, in this King's Valley revelation, which which speaks of one to come. The threefold office of Christ is also prophet, priest, and king. And so whereas Melchizedek is the type, Christ is the anti-type, fulfilling these roles in ultimate perfection And so the significance of his forebearer, if you will, the one who went before him by type is evident in his offices in our text today. Second major point, the offering presented. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out something in verse 18. That is, he brought out bread and wine. He offered, he presented to Abram a feast, a victory feast, bread and wine. As I'm told by Hebrew idiom, this often refers to bread and wine as something like this. He brought out everything from bread to wine. Uh, Similar, maybe a little more uh, archaic idiom in our own culture is soup to nuts. It means like an entire feast. Everything in the kitchen sink. These are similar idioms. So the language here indicates a glorious feast, a celebration. It it also indicates a sacred feast, a feast on a table that is set by a priest. It also signifies a royal feast, a feast where kings sit down to dine with kings or leaders of tribes and nations in the case of Abram. A royal, sacred, glorious feast is what is pictured here in bread and wine. It's reference to bountiful provision. This is what's offered. That which is presented to Abram in this encounter is the fullness of what the king Melchizedek can offer by way of glorifying God for his victory and indicating deeper meaning as well. Turn to Psalm 23. This morning we sang Psalm 23, a rendition of it. And I'm sure many of you, if not most, have memorized this psalm. But towards the end in the promises of the good shepherd to the sheep, we have verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see how the offering that is presented The offering of this feast by Melchizedek prefigures the role of the good shepherd. Melchizedek prepares a table before Abram and his victorious throne 18 soldiers in the presence of his enemies. The king of Sodom is even sitting down at this feast. And this is in the context of Abram's great defeat of his enemies in war. And by this feast, he and his men presumably are filled and refreshed at this bountiful table that includes everything from bread to wine. This is pictured in poetic terms in Psalm 23, by anointing my head with oil, my cup overflowing, and a full spread on this table before him. And from this testimony of provision, uh, the psalmist, David, goes on to draw this implication, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, the God who can give sufficient provision to maintain the endurance of his people during the battle campaigns of faithfulness in this life, by that testimony, we know he will lead us into glorious green pastures of the next life. The God who provides for us in his sufficient word, in his means of grace, hope and help, For our affliction right now, this is proof that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we will dwell in his house forever. When that table of bread and wine by this king who is a type of the Messiah to come was spread before Abram, it not only represented refreshment and respite from his war campaign, but it also represented a promise that the God who had covenanted with Abram would fulfill in his perfect time, in his perfect way, his ultimate fulfillment, every other promise as well, including a great lineage, the promise of future peace, the dwelling in a glorious realm, Jerusalem to come, where there would be the satisfaction of sins and the uh, the, uh, reconciliation of man with God, and peace again would return to God's created order. This is all implied here. But one more thing as well not only is indicated a promise of further transcendent provision, but we can't help but notice that as Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, he also spreads a table before them in the presence of their enemies, namely sin and the wages of sin. And what table does the Lord spread before, his, before us? I'll give you a hint, kids. Tomorrow, or next week, before us, that table will be spread Right here, and it has two major elements. young people, what are the two major elements that are at the lord's table that's a, exactly right. bread and wine. Does this not remind us of Genesis 14:18? Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. so Christ our king offers himself as bread and wine on Calvary and symbolize in and symbolizing that event, are the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as Jesus says, if you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, you will have provision. Provision unto the saving uh, of your sins, salvation from your sins, and also unto abundant eternal life. Truly, this bread and wine feast speaks of the King to come who will spread before us himself, His own body and blood as a sacrificial offering and provision presented to us to sustain us in our sin and to resurrect us and to unify us with him, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. And finally, this feast of bread and wine, we could go further, I submit to say, it it anticipates the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is an ultimate table of provision spread before all of the saints who have been redeemed in glory one day. Perhaps if we have time, we'll touch upon this in Revelation 19, the close of this message, where we sit down to partake of our king's great feast in the glorious new Jerusalem. So you see the significance of Melchizedek is evident in his offices, and it's evident in his offering presented not only does he present this feast of bread and wine, which is so symbolated, but also he presents a mediatory blessing. That is, a blessing of mediation. Blessing from God is delivered to Abram, and blessing to God, true worship, uh, the other direction as well. Blessed be Abram, verse 19. "By God, most High, possessor of heaven and earth." And then the other direction, and blessed be God, most High, who has delivered your enemies." Into your hand. This is a mediatory blessing. What mediatory means is to go between. And this is a priestly prayer, it's a priestly blessing. Melchizedek is standing between the Lord and his servant Abram in the form of this blessing. And he is proclaiming that blessings are available from God to Abram, and true worship is available to offer from Abram to the Lord. This is a picture of communion a mutual exchange of glorious hope, joy, communication, and relationship. The connection between Abram and heaven has been assured in this prophecy, where this priest-king delivers this assurance that in the covenant hope that God has delivered to Abram, the blessings of heaven are opened up, the doors of glory are pouring out upon Abram. And in return, Abram offers as his sacrifice of praise, his praises to the Lord. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered Abram and his company from his enemies. So this offering presented includes this feast. It includes this mediatory blessing, this communion relationship, presuming this covenant bond. The possessor of heaven and earth Un. Claims unlimited blessings. So if it is God who possesses both heaven and earth, what is the limit of that which he will bestow by way of promise upon his subjects? There is no limit. There is no substitute that we should be distracted or tempted by, therefore. We, we, we contrast this mediatory blessing that is available through the covenant relationship with the Lord with the promise of petty and worldly wealth and we determine by this example that none can compare. We recognize the sovereignty of God in the defeat of the keter coalition and the liberation of Lot and his estate. And this is recognized in this prayer, which is offered as a priestly b- blessing on Abram's behalf by Melchizedek, the significant one who prefigures Christ. There is a direct contrast in our text today Notice the difference between the offering that is presented by Melchizedek and then the offering that is, that is presented by the king of Sodom. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, "Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself." Did the king receive the offering of the king or I'm sorry, did Abram receive the offering of the king of Sodom? Basically what happened is the king of Sodom recognized that if it wasn't for Abram, they would be absolutely devastated. Abram returns with all the possessions of the city and the king offers them to him. He says, take, you can go ahead, just give me my people back, but go ahead and take those spoils of war as whatever, as a, a gift from the king of Sodom to Abram, a repre- or recognizing that Abram, he owes his existence to Abram's victory in this campaign. Did Abraham receive this gift? No, he did not. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord. Um, think in a courtroom. In a courtroom, have you guys ever seen this? There's usually a Bible. And one hand is placed in the Bible and the other hand is lifted. That symbolizes or that is a gesture that is assumed, a position that is assumed when one is to take a solemn oath and vow. This is the context that Abram gives his words. He says, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth using the same language revealed to him by Melchizedek. And this is his promise, his commitment, verse 23, his vow, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. There is a sharp contrast here to the blessing that is offered through the type of Christ, the Melchizedekian, if you will, priest, king, prophet. There is a contrast between what he offers us And what the worldly kingdoms of this world offer us. And Abram has a discernment to know exactly which one to choose. Now, this is in contrast also to Lot's fatal attraction, if you will, for what the cities of the plains can offer. You remember why Lot's captured and why he lives in this area in the first place? It's because the offering of Sodom was appealing to him. Lot, in chapter 13, lifted up his eyes. Just says reminder, verse 10, and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and so forth. But Lot would learn the hard way that what Sodom had to offer uh, was not worth the price. And it came with a stiff penalty of judgment, discipline in his case, but horrific, utter destruction in the case of the unrepentant residents of Sodom. So this contrast again is evident in our text. Abraham vows, I will not be tempted by the wealth of Sodom, but instead I will receive the blessing, the blessing mediatory blessing and this extravagant feast from Melchizedek, the righteous king of peace. In contrast to Lot's attraction to the bounty of Sodom, Abram refused to re- to acquire a blessing that would compromise the testimony of the covenant. Again, Abram refused to acquire a blessing that would compromise the testimony of the covenant. This happens again, Genesis 23, 12 through 16. Abram is seeking a piece of land to bury his late wife. Sarah Uh, Sarah dies and he just needs a place to bury his wife. It almost moves me to tears to think sometimes that the only plot of land that Abram had permanent claim to was one that he bought with 400 pieces of silver or whatever it was to the kings to bury his beloved bride. Other than that, Abram was pretty much a wanderer and had no claim on the land. Well, he was offered that land for free. The kings of the region insisted that he take it. And he says, no, I will not take it. Uh, I will not take it as an offering. I will not take it as a gift. I will pay the going rate. And in so doing this, similar to here, Abraham demonstrates in that decision that he will not, he refuses to acquire a blessing that would compromise the testimony of the covenant. In other words, when you look at the legacy of Abram, all of the blessings that attend his way, it's obvious. They were given to him sovereignly by God. Um, Abram didn't always exercise this kind of faith. We will see uh, in due course where he tries to come about his blessing of lineage by another way and how that brings sorrow upon his home. But as far as this goes, it's a good example. Abraham refuses that which would compromise the glory of God. He is not interested in the, uh, in the favor of worldly kings. He is not going to accept the offering of this wicked king of Sodom. This wicked king of Sodom isn't even named. Meanwhile, we have such significance of the king that is uh, referenced in the name Melchizedek. Which king should we court for favor? The rulers of this world, the ones who say they lay claim to riches and can bless us so, or should we walk like Abraham did by faith, looking forward to that which we may not see with our own eyes, but is ultimately promised to us in the gospel. That is the testimony, the example of Abram. Significance of Melchizedek evident in number one, his offices disclosed, number two, the offering presented, number three, homage received. Final point this morning. This also is significant. Verse 20b, And Abram gave him, that is to say, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. This is homage. This is honor. <coughs> Tribute, if you will. A tithe literally means 10%. Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It was a honor that was bestowed upon this king. And as Melchizedek received this homage from Abram, we have testimony to his significance. Later in Hebrews 7, 7, the scriptures tell us it is the lesser who gives tithes to the greater. That is, the author of Hebrews identifies Melchizedek as greater than Abraham. And insofar as he is a type of the prophet, priest, king, Jesus Christ to come, that is absolutely true. And so in the fact that Abram gave him a tenth, this man, this patriarch, this leader of God's covenant people at that time, there was one that he paid tribute to, that he paid tithes to. That individual must be important. He sure was. His name was Melchizedek. Our king is righteous. He was the king of peace. And he prefigured a king to come to which all, all the covenant faithful pay our tribute and lift our homage to Jesus Christ even in the context of our worship service. Perhaps you've gotten your paycheck this week and you've written out 10% as a check to drop in the offering box in the back. That is one application of worship that is homage to our King. When we even tithe of our physical wealth, that which God has given us, we honor, we pay tribute to, we defer to a greater sovereign over us, we recognize that it is his blessing that has given us our means in the first place. And so it is our joy and it is our privilege to bring to him these expressions of worship. Our praise, our ties, if you will, and our service in his kingdom. Abram's Abraham's tribute comes in contrast to a conflict that erupted over tribute. In other words, there's our, there are false tributes, false taxes all the time. Where nations seek to put, you know, into uh, put into, or they like in this case, dominant kings seek seek to subject other kings to pay tribute to them. And that creates conflict and so on and so forth. But Abram is testimony to the ultimate tribute, which is to honor the Lord with our means, recognizing that He is the perfect King of peace, and He is the righteous King who reigns over all. Now, the significance of Melchizedek is further evident, not only as we've mentioned in this homage that he receives through Abram's tribute, but the prophetic significance unfolds through the course of the Scriptures. And I want to touch on just a couple of examples very quickly this morning. First is in Psalm 110. Psalm 110.2, "...the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies." Prophecy of a mighty king to come. Scepter and rule in the midst of enemies. Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is spoken of here? It is one and only one, a unique and extraordinary one. According to the order of Melchizedekian priesthood, who could truthfully say, in the words of David, Or this could be said of him in the words of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who was David's Lord who said to David's Lord, it would be God the Father, says to God the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Who would this mysterious figure be? He would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and he would be a king whose scepter and rule would declare victory in the midst of his enemies. Zechariah chapter 6, second to last book in the Old Testament. There is a really interesting picture in this vision the prophet sees. And note how it relates to the fulfillment of the Melchizedekian. Zechariah six eleven, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Notice what's unique about this? Make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest. What's the name of the high priest? Joshua. Joshua was an actual guy at that time who was serving as high priest, but he is a stand-in for a priest to come who would be also crowned. And Jesus, his name is Joshua in the Greek. That is, Jesus is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua. So what the prophet has seen is in the future, there will be a priest like Joshua in his day who would be honored and crowned with silver and gold with a glorious authority placed upon him. Yes, a priest and a king. Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch For he shall branch out from this place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Priest, throne, and peace. You see, the promise of Melchizedek is echoed in prophecy, looking forward to a priest who will be crowned. Final reference this morning, Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we have a picture of a lamb who is crowned. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the antitype. This is Melchizedek to come. Revelation 19:9, 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. There's that marriage supper reference. Think of bread and wine Melchizedek spread before Abram in the presence of his enemies. He goes on. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, you must not do that. This is the angel speaking. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. for The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw the heavens open. Behold, a white horse and one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges. This is a righteous king. And makes war, verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his, thre- on his head <coughs> are many diadems. Young people, do you know what a diadem is? Who knows what a diadem is? Uh, close, not exactly. Think of head. Do you look close? What did Theo say? A crown. A diadem is a crown. <coughs> so we see this figure in John's vision. <coughs> clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. His eyes are like flames of fire. On his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is, called, uh, he is clothed in the robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And the revelation continues. Suffice it to say, as the prophetic significance of scripture records, Moving forward through the passages of Scripture, we see the significance of the King's Valley revelation. Who is Melchizedek? He is a forerunner of a king, priest, sacrifice, Messiah, prophet to come. He is the one, Jesus Christ, who will also serve in manifold offices. He is the one who offers himself as a table spread before us in the presence of our enemies. He's also the one who spreads a feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, ultimately ushering in the kingdom, the kingdom of peace in New Jerusalem. He is the one who will defeat his enemies in battle and also intercede on behalf of his own he is the one who is crowned, the jo- crowned Joshua priest or Jesus priest and king in Zechariah's vision. He is the lamb who was slain and crowned with multiple diadems or symbols of honor as crowns again in Revelation 9 through 12. In closing, we see that the significance of Melchizedek looks forward to the significance of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek signals a new priestly order and as such, his revelation in the King's Valley has supernatural elements. The historic Melchizedek is a supernatural representation of a priest-king figure. And this supernatural truth is primarily communicated by his literal situation in the scriptures. Not necessarily his person physically or his reign physically, but instead the way that this is recorded. This mysterious appearance and limited account of even his origin and legacy are purposely designed in order to convey and to typify the supernatural nature and status of his anti-type, the true prophet, priest, sacrifice, and king, Jesus Christ. Now this morning we haven't even touched very much on Hebrews 6 and 7, but perhaps we'll leave that for another message where the author of Hebrews expounds like no other author the significance of the order of the Melchizedekian, if you will, priesthood. But until that time, I beg you to study this passage in light of further revelation in Scripture and be encouraged as you read God's holy word and realize the importance of these moments in Abram's legacy where Jesus to come is revealed in this event. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the promise of Scripture that is actually fulfilled in the incarnation and the coronation of Christ our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we have the benefit of hindsight. So things that Abram and the prophets of old longed to inquire and look into, we are uniquely positioned to understand as the Holy Spirit has revealed them, fulfilled in the incarnate, resurrected, ascended, and ruling Christ, Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, teach us to appreciate these things and stir our hearts with the appropriate affections and worship that you are worthy of in light of this revelation, in light of this glorious evidence of your sovereign power. May we be encouraged and strengthened, emboldened and steadfast and immovable as a result, calling the lost to salvation and having the endurance necessary to stay faithful until you call us home before that great feast, that marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to this, Lord, even as we see anticipations of it in the prophecies of old and even in events in Abram's life. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for these glimpses of glory. May we treat them with the value they deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.